This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This reports out on what we call Chapter 3 on technology. It has quite a long title. We'll just simplify it by saying technology going forward. And there's an outstanding team of authors who supported the preparation of this chapter and the summary that I'm able to provide to you uh, today. Uh, These are the technologies and the chapter sections uh, that are being addressed. Let me just start out with the introduction and build off of the note that uh, Commissioner Hochschild just made with respect to the solar and wind. You can see where it's evolving and emerging and being deployed rapidly. What David Austin and I decided to do was to focus not on solar and wind, but rather on the technologies that need to complement wind and solar and also succeed in driving down carbon, as well as the technologies that need to complement solar and wind in order to enable a higher penetration uh, into the uh, uh, energy system. For example, if we look at fossil and renewable power generation, Uh, This is the uh, outline of the uh, load that is represented for California over 10 days. If you look at the top along the ridge, a thin black line, that's the demand. And then that demand is fulfilled through the generation represented by the different uh, colors. Uh, Black is the load following uh, portion that helps to manage that dynamic. And then up here, you'll see the peakers, that little bit of red that come on to provide the remaining amount of electricity uh, that we need. Uh, This is particularly for an RPS of 14. If we go to uh, 20, you can see that it becomes a bit more magnified. As it goes to 33%, the dynamics become very challenging, including uh, the curtailment here of wind, uh, the additional peaker capacity, a greater load following capacity in the black, and then these high ramp rates in order to meet that variation in intermittent solar and wind. So recommendations coming out of this particular section would be to have this balance between our emphasis on greenhouse gases along with air quality, what we call the criteria pollutants. That message came through very loud and clear this morning, as well as with water. To replace these less efficient and higher polluting combustion power plants with state-of-the-art, high-efficiency, zero-criteria pollutant emission fuel cell power plants. To accelerate the development of hybrid gas turbine fuel cell technology to achieve fuel-flexible, ultra-high-efficiency, zero-criteria emission for both distributed and central generation and to accelerate the development of load-following, high-ramp-rate fuel cell systems and hybrid fuel cells. This is sounding just like a great engineering lecture, isn't it? Um, And then finally, to accelerate the development of renewable fuels, biomethane, biohydrogen, renewable methane, renewable hydrogen, and the development of increasingly renewable natural gas resource. Again, that comes out of a message that you heard loud and clear this morning. If we look at transportation, that's right in lockstep with power generation in terms of contributing to greenhouse gases. On the left, you see the segment proportion for the state of California, and you'll see the transportation in the blue is a very substantial amount of the greenhouse gas emission. Over on the right, if we break down that 
transportation sector, you see the majority comes from light duty vehicles. We now have the type of vehicles that are being deployed commercially to address this with zero carbon emission and also the zero emission of criteria pollutants. But on the heavy duty vehicles, which represents a major amount as well or a major portion, we do not yet have the attention to that heavy duty sector. If we turn right now to criteria pollutants, here are the oxides of nitrogen. And you see here that the light duty vehicles are not as large as the heavy duty vehicles. A moment ago, I said the light duty vehicles were being addressed through zero carbon. Remember that also is getting us to zero criteria pollutant emission. The same attention now is, must be given to heavy duty uh, vehicles. Hence, the recommendations here are for light duty vehicles to really accelerate that commercialization, that transition into this zero carbon vehicle future. Battery electric vehicles, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. And just last week, of course, Toyota released the first Mirai hydrogen fuel cell vehicle to a customer. Heavy duty vehicles, this is where there needs to be a substantial amount of attention. Accelerate the development and deployment of highly efficient fuel cell engines. This is for that heavy duty, heavy duty truck with zero criteria pollutant emission to alleviate the carbon and criteria pollutant uh, signature associated with the goods movement. On vehicle fuels to accelerate the evolution of viable and scalable storage technology, battery, hydrogen, the use of V2G to facilitate the production and storage of renewable fuels from renewable solar and wind that would otherwise be curtailed. And this is really very interesting because of the convergence between transportation and the electric grid. Uh, the wording here is with the historically disparate electric power generation and transportation sectors, that means typically silos, <laughs> now moving toward a new integrated paradigm to proactively utilize the evolving system models which are now becoming available, particularly through the University of California, to facilitate the path to meet this group of requirements, the reliability, the economy, the public acceptance, and the climate change and other environmental goals. We move to biomass fuels, and in this particular slide, we see the available resources in a particular country, uh, state, uh, California. Uh, up here is in the kind of maroon, uh, the gross resource that's available. In the blue would be that which we can extract on a sustainable manner and be able to replace every year. That turns out to be about 32 uh, short tons of material. The economically uh, available is a bit less than that. But what that translates into is about 4,600 megawatts of electric power or being able to fuel today three quarters of the automobiles in California, about 200 million automobiles. The messages here would be to accelerate the availability of bioresources for power generation and transportation fuels. We just saw a nice example of a biomass electric power plant. To accelerate the use of bioresources to produce products that are otherwise coming today from more conventional, non-renewable feedstocks such as petroleum, coal, and natural gas. And then third, to accelerate the use of bioresources to increase renewable content of natural gas and fuel both directly and indirectly 
the dispatchable power required to facilitate this high penetration of variable and intermittent solar and wind generation. This is really a key component for California, for the country, and for the world, is the identification of a clean power source that can provide the management and complement the intermittency and variability of solar and, and wind. Moving into nuclear power generation, we elected to include this because of its use throughout the world, its probable continuing use. And the messages here are that the United States in general and California in particular provide very strong expertise historically and today in this area, and that needs to be nurtured. Expertise not only in the waste of nuclear, but also in the development of next generation nuclear power plants, not necessarily for California, perhaps not even for the United States, but they are very popular elsewhere in the world. We're going to continue to be, and the leadership of the University of California in this area has been very, very impressive. So first, in a recommendation is to maintain that expertise. Second, to develop the capacity to place spent fuel and high-level waste into deep geologic storage, regardless of whether nuclear energy expands or contracts. Third, to develop the competency in the next generation, the next generation of young people associated with nuclear security, to develop that sensitivity and responsibility for the challenge that we've already established and that we're going to have to be able to maintain. And then to continue to develop advanced nuclear technologies that address safety, economics, as well as waste. On battery technology, so here as you look at the boundary around that red mass in the middle, that boundary represents the goals for batteries to be fully commercial and fully useful in both transportation and in the electric grid. This particular diagram is for the electric vehicle developed by the U.S. Advanced Battery Coalition. And in the red is the current state for lithium ion. So it shows how successful lithium ion has been, but it also shows the extent to which we would like to evolve lithium ion or battery technology in general in order to fulfill the requirements that the future uh, demands. Uh, this chart uh, demonstrates, again, the evolution of lithium ion. On the left axis is cost. On the horizontal axis would be the energy density. This is where we are today with lithium-ion. This is where we want to go. You can see many opportunities and challenges, but a lot of research. This will get us to the 200-mile EV. This is where we have to go to get to the 350-mile EV, if in fact we can get there. And just for reference, this is our grid storage target. This is one of the reasons that we speak about hydrogen energy storage is because of the challenge of getting battery electric storage down to these types of energy densities. But nonetheless, that's a stretch goal. Here, the recommendations are to focus on improving near-term technologies, and you can read through the three specific advances that are identified by the uh, author, to support research and development on grid-scale storage, that's getting to that, how far can we go with battery electric storage in order to provide the energy storage capability that we're going to need today and in the future on the grid. Support R&D for the next generation technologies like lithium metal, 
manganese ion, et cetera, and then to foster a formation of public-private partnerships to accelerate the innovations into the, uh, into the market. How about lighting? Well, the focus on lighting is on the LED, and here it is diagrammatically. We're getting more used to that. The public acceptance is rapidly growing. The price is coming down. This is a chart that's interesting just to show the advance in the performance, the efficacy of LEDs. Here is the efficacy. Here is the decades over which uh, that has competed or been challenged by incandescent and fluorescent. And you can see where we are today. We're there. It's a matter now of the uh, deployment. And one of the charts used to describe the effect of LED, 20% of our electricity today is taken up by lighting, would be this chart, which shows the number of nuclear power plants that will not have to be built by 2020 if we successfully succeed in getting the deployment of LEDs into the market. Uh, this is a rational deployment of LEDs to about 50% in the market. Depends upon the country of how far that goes. And then these are the nuclear power plants. They've been weighted to the average size in each of the countries. For the U.S., it's just under 1,000 megawatts. Utilization factor about 91%. But this could just as well be coal-fired power plants. What it is saying is either nuclear power does not have to be provided or, more importantly, to the climate change challenge is coal-fired natural gas fossil fuel uh, power plants. Very inviting graph with respect to the potential of LED, and that train's already left the station. Here, to accelerate the replacement of all incandescent, metal halide, and fluorescent fixtures, and then to work through research and development of a 200 lumen per watt intelligent LED system, more and more smarts, optimized for color and brightness, very interesting, in order to improve work and school productivity. This is really getting cool, and building efficiency. Geothermal heat pumps, kind of lost in the background, on the back burner. Uh, these are uh, engineering devices to convey energy into and out of the Earth's crust. It depends upon, their effectiveness depends upon the climate zone. Uh, what you see here are the different climate zones for California, and then those green dots represent the campuses of the University of California, just to show you that depending upon the campus, a geothermal heat pump might be more effective than another. This is really to replace conventional heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems with a much more efficient and much lower carbon-intense uh, strategy. On this particular plot, it's interesting in that it shows along the horizontal axis the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the geothermal heat pump and along the vertical axis, the greenhouse gases associated with today's heating um, and uh, air conditioning ventilation. This 45 degree line represents, you know, zero emission reduction if you were to transform from conventional HVAC to a geothermal uh, heat pump. 
uh, 20% reduction here, 50% reduction here, 80%. And this just shows the communities around the state and where they would benefit, or in one case, it would be a wash relative to the transformation to this particular technology. If adopted by the University of California, the average would be over a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas, as an example. Recommendations, accounting for climate zones, deploy geothermal heat pump systems to provide energy savings and emissions. Increase the benefits by coupling geothermal heat pumps with other renewable resources into integrated or hybrid systems for even greater returns, taking advantage of synergisms that are available in that space. And then third gets to our chapter on communications. We'll be getting to that. Fascinating chapter in the report that Rom has put together of conveying information, in this case to the local agencies, in order to be more receptive to this particular uh, technology. Smart grid technology, 3.9. So here's the vision of the grid of the future. You can see uh, power plants. You can see green automobiles, some of them battery electric vehicles, some of them hydrogen electric vehicles. You can see batteries, batteries here. Solar, of course. You can also see uh, microgrid. Some of you were able to visit this afternoon. And nanogrids, which is basically the grid within a building such as this. And it just gives you the feeling that that is, while very exciting and a vision of the zero carbon future, it's very challenging to control, particularly with the intermittency of the solar and wind resources that are at the heart of that system. So what smart grid technology is, is to bring that sort of control so that people like up here, which is the system operator, has the ability to manage that system, such as the utility, as shown here, has the ability to manage the distribution portion of that system so that the plug-in electric vehicles which are likely going to become an integral part of both the load and the availability of energy to the grid is going to have to be controlled. And then, of course, to you and me and the operator and manager of the industry or of the office building, but you and me in our homes, to the customer of being able to give us options of what economic profile we want to be able to follow and have that be followed at least we want to manually override that. So this is pretty well a description of the smart grid in terms of what it constitutes, an intelligent grid with communication, etc. The goals of the smart grid, these are the ones that have driven its evolution, but this is particular one is the one that's germane to our discussion today to meet the challenging environmental goals associated with climate change, air quality, and water utilization. Here, the recommendations are to conduct the systems level grid modeling that we alluded to earlier, but in this case, to identify, quantify, and develop the scenarios needed 
to resolve the challenges that the smart grid technology is positioned to address. With respect to controlling these real-time dynamics associated with intermittent solar and wind. Magnificent technology, but we have to manage it. And here, this is huge, a lot of words. Managing generation resources in combination with storage, electricity markets, ancillary services associated with distributed energy resources and microgrids, battery and fuel cell electric vehicles, and the goods movement. Uh, it's something that's evolving, but it needs this backbone of research and support. You can see the types of technologies, while they're available today, they need to be substantially increased in their capability to support this future. And then this particular bullet is associated with the complementary robust electricity markets that are going to be needed and are being considered today in support of this smart future. Yes, we've got time for uh, one or two quick questions. Yes. Scott, my question is about this uh, microgrid and nanogrid. And uh, a couple of hours ago, I talked to Governor Brown, and I said, would you like to visit micro or microgrid? He said, why should I visit the microgrid? What use is that? So I told him it saves on transmission losses. So he said, that's only 5 to 10%. So tomorrow he's going to ask the question, so why are we going for the microgrid if all we are gaining there is 5 to 10%? I'm sure there is other things I'm trying to flush it out. Well, one of the advantages of the microgrid and why it's becoming popular is the opportunity for the microgrid uh, owner to have a greater degree of reliability and certainty as well as a flexibility in the manner by which that uh, facility is uh, operated. Uh, typically, whether it's a shopping center or a university, the customers of that uh, microgrid are very much depending upon that electric energy for uh, their uh, work. Uh, and reliability is becoming a greater and greater uh, commodity uh, that has to be fulfilled, and a microgrid gives that opportunity. But if we go further, the microgrid gives a local opportunity for the people and personnel associated with the microgrid to actually work to decrease the load and reach greater levels of energy efficiency. On one of our UC campuses over the last eight years, we have actually halved, reduced by over 50% the load on that campus and in proportional, of course, reduced the amount of carbon that would otherwise be uh, emitted. And then a third part of the answer, Ron, would be that the microgrid is being identified more and more by the system operators at the uh, state level, as by the utilities, as a needed resource to be able to manage the grid outside of the uh, microgrid. That's called ancillary services. Finally, I'll say that in Hurricane Sandy, microgrids became very familiar to Congress because they hadn't heard about them before. 
But in the case when the grid goes down, for the microgrid in principle, and that's going to be achieved, to remain in operation and provide services not only to the microgrid community, but for the external community, even perhaps being able to port power to critical services, such as hospitals and fire stations, high schools for shelter, grocery stores, outside the microgrid, but within reach of the microgrid. So those are some of the features and attributes of microgrids we find very attractive. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.